Welcome to the show. I'm happy to report that I'm feeling much, much better. Um, Two nights ago, woke up in the middle of the night, projectile vomited. It was absolutely grotesque. And then because I'm a maniac, I I tried to override it and do the show on Monday, and it was just, it was basically Mission Impossible. Uh, Every time, see, when you do a show like this and you talk for two hours, two hours and 15 minutes, um, the entire time, like, talking is just pushing air out of your mouth. And when you just threw up recently and you do that, it's like you're flirting with that, that gag reflex and that vomit reflex. I could feel my, um, what's it called? Diaphragm? No, not diaphragm. Um, I'm forgetting the word for it. But I could feel, like, the pressure rise in my upper chest and it was like flirting with that throw up feeling it was just i i I honestly think if i tried to push through any more i would have thrown up on air (laughs) which would have made quite a viral clip but i'm i'm not looking to go viral for the wrong reasons you know i'm saying i'm looking to go viral for the right reasons if i go viral at all of course um so a lot of stuff to talk about today. Got a really interesting show lined up for you. Um, Donald Trump went on Fox News and started bashing Biden. He did it in a way only Trump can, where he's wrong about everything. Um, we have a really amazing clip where a CNN host actually tells the truth about the military-industrial complex. This is a clip that you're truly, truly not going to want to miss. 
We have Biden's new tax proposal. We have um, Biden's infrastructure bill. Bernie talks about cancel culture, which is actually very interesting, if I don't say so myself. Um, So there's a lot of great stuff in the show today, a lot of stuff that I'm uh, particularly interested in. So um, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And um, I want to do that with President Trump going on Fox. So former President Donald Trump went on Fox News, and uh, the whole point of it was to bash Biden. But in typical Donald Trump fashion, he massively overreached. And this is the line of attack that he went with. No, they're, they're going to destroy our country in other ways, too, if you look at what's going on. You're going to have back to court. Well, Montana, you're going to have uh, big tax increases. They're going to take your guns away. I mean, take a look at what they're doing with uh, – take a look at what's coming up, and I predicted it all. Now, I must say, I never thought that Biden – and it's not Biden. It's other people that are, you know, putting stuff in front of them. But I never thought that – I never thought that Biden in a million years would be worse. Nobody did would be far worse than Bernie Sanders. This is Bernie Sanders on steroids. This is what he's doing with all and, that, and you haven't seen anything yet. These guys are so silly. They're so silly. By the way, Donald Trump was the guy who repeatedly said that uh Bernie Sanders got screwed by the Democratic establishment. He was the real outsider. Bernie and I agree on a lot of things. We agree on trade. Bernie's right about trade. And he got screwed by the establishment because they hate him and they despise him. And now he does a complete 180 and he's saying, actually, Bernie's like the real president and Bernie is controlling Biden. Biden is Bernie's puppet. And so that's what's going on right now. Biden is Bernie Sanders on steroids. Hold on. You just said that Bernie Sanders was the anti-establishment guy who they screwed. So if... Biden is burning on steroids. Does that mean you're saying he's really anti-establishment? Is that your argument? They don't, like, the point I'm trying to get across to you is there is no logic. There is no reason. There is no, like, here's what I actually think is going on. They're just flinging mud against the wall and hoping something sticks. That's all it is. Attack him from every angle, any angle, with whatever nonsense you could come up with. I'm never going to get over that line. Biden is Bernie Sanders on steroids. I wish Biden was Bernie Sanders on steroids. If Biden was Bernie Sanders on steroids, he might be like a little guy by the name of FDR, which would mean he would be phenomenally popular. People, I mean, obviously people today don't remember it because they weren't alive, but the last time we had anything remotely approaching social democracy in this country, the guy won four times. The Republicans had to come up with term limits because they were like, oh, my God, if we don't have term limits, then the Democrats are never going to lose. They're too goddamn popular. I mean, we have to stop them somehow. This is the only way we know how. Basically, try to change the system to force them out of office. That's what happens when you give people a taste of social democracy. If Biden was acting like Bernie Sanders on steroids, his approval rating wouldn't be 55 percent. His approval rating would be 80 percent. If Biden was acting like Bernie on steroids, he would have done the $15 minimum wage. No, in fact, what he would have done is a $23 minimum wage because that's what the minimum wage would be if it kept up with productivity. He would have done free college. He would have done Medicare for all. He would have signed an executive order to do it on day one because we're in a pandemic and it's an emergency, and he has the ability to sign an executive order on it. There's a provision in Obamacare that allows for emergency coverage for everybody under Medicare. 
So, I, I, again, I wish, I can't tell you how much I wish that was the case. If Biden was burning on steroids, we already would have been out of all the wars. Oh, what a glorious world it would be. What a glorious country we would live in if Biden was Bernie Sanders on steroids. We'd already have legalized marijuana in the entire country because Biden would have made sure on day one, I'm going to take it off the Schedule One substances list. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take marijuana off the Schedule One substances list, de facto legalizing it for the entire country like that with one executive order. He would have abolished all student debt instead of what he did, which was abolish less than 1% of student debt. That's what Biden did. He abolished $1 billion worth of student loan debt. $1 billion. You know how much there is overall? $1.69 trillion. So less than 1% of student debt is what Biden abolished. And I love the other things that Trump points out there. These Democrats want to pack the court. Terrible. Um, They don't want to pack the court, but I wish they wanted to pack the court, because unfortunately, the way it works now... You guys basically pack the courts, and you know what's going to happen? Anytime we get any positive legislation through at all, somebody's going to sue, and there's a very good chance to get slapped down by the judicial branch. So I wish they would pack the court, but they're not going to pack the court. So again, wrong in multiple ways. And then he talks about a big tax increase. They're going to do a big tax increase. Listen, I'm going to show you the exact proposals in Biden's tax plan later on in this, this same show. And you're going to see, when he talks about big tax increases, the tax plan does not raise taxes for regular Americans, for working people, for middle class and low income people. It simply does not do that. You are factually wrong if you say it does that. So when he says there's big tax increases, is rushing to defend the establishment. He's rushing to defend corporations. He's rushing to defend billionaires and the wealthy. See, this is what everybody needs to understand. When Republicans talk about cutting taxes, they don't mean for you. They don't mean for you. In fact, Tom Hartman had a great segment on this the other day, detailing how Ronald Reagan, even though he cut taxes massively, he effectively raised taxes for middle-class people and poor people. They don't mean for you. When they talk about cutting taxes, they mean for corporations and the wealthy. And this is what Trump means when he says they're going to do big tax increases. Big tax increases on all his buddies in corporate America, and his fellow billionaires at Mar-a-Lago. And, I I mean, then they say they're going to take your guns away. I mean, we just had two mass shootings in, like, two days. Um, And they always go immediately nuclear to describe what the Democrats are proposing in the most hyperbolic way imaginable. None of the Democrats are proposing taking your guns away. We actually do have this thing called the Second Amendment, and that does prevent some of the most extreme gun control measures from being on the table and in the discussion. So the things that Democrats propose, usually it's stuff like universal background checks, high-capacity magazine bans, assault weapons bans. And by the way, none of the proposals, I repeat, none of the proposals are retroactive. So you know what that means? 40 million guns were purchased last year alone. 40 million. All those guns, grandfathered in. They're grandfathered in. So they're not going anywhere. So there will be no gun confiscation. Nobody's going to come and take your guns. There might be minor tweaks and minor regulation around the edges, but that's it. But again, they describe it in the most hyperbolic way imaginable. I'm sorry, man, but the big man lost his touch. And this is why he lost the 2020 election. He lost his touch. Back in 2016, his rhetoric was vaguely populist, and he sounded a little bit more like an outsider. Then he got the partisan brainworms, because all he does is watch Fox News 24-7, 
And now he's in the place where he sounds like any other idiot Fox News host, where he just throws mud against the wall and hopes something sticks with his criticism of the Democrats. None of it's going to stick, because none of this makes sense. They're going to pack the court. No, they're not. They're going to do big tax increases. They're certainly not on regular people. They're going to take your guns away. No, they're not. Biden is Bernie Sanders on steroids. Son, I wish. I wish. So anyway, this is what Trump is up to. Apparently, he's playing golf every day in Mar-a-Lago, creating a new social media company, and still poisoning his brain with endless Fox News. Okay. That's a good way to start the show. What do you guys think? That's a good way to start the show if I don't say so myself. What do you guys say? All right, now I'm going to fucking blow your mind. Do not cut that clip out early because I said I'm going to blow, and some of you guys are dirty as fuck. But I'm going to blow your mind with this next clip because this is maybe the best segment of all time on CNN. I don't say this lightly, but this clip that I'm about to show you is probably the best clip I've ever seen on CNN. CNN generally does horrendous work. Horrendous work. They have Wolf Blitzer on 84 hours in the day where he regurgitates robot talking points. He's never made an interesting or controversial or edgy point in his life. Um, He's a clown. Virtually every host has brain worms and they're partisan hacks or they serve the establishment or they're just incredibly uninteresting. I could criticize them all day long, and I do. I mean, that's half of my job is to criticize CNN and mainstream media. But what you're about to see here, this might be the first time ever we're covering a CNN clip, and it's like there's no caveats, no hedges, no, hey, I would tweak this or do this different. No. This clip is 100% credit to the host here, Fareed Zakaria. In fact, this clip is so good, I fear he's going to lose his job soon. <laughs> like, this is one of those things where if the higher-ups see it, they'll be like, okay, he's donezo. How many years has he been on air? Okay, he's, he's had a good run. But he's over because he just crossed the line. He, I mean, these are multiple taboos. He's poking these taboos with a stick right in the eye in this segment. So he's going to unequivocally call out the military-industrial complex in the most direct way I've ever seen in mainstream media. Watch this. But first, here's my take. During his visit to Asia this week, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin outlined his key concern. And while we were focused on issues in the Middle East, China has modernized its military, and so our goal is to make sure that we maintain a competitive edge over China or anyone else. Welcome to the new age of bloated Pentagon budgets, all to be justified by the great Chinese threat. What Austin calls America's edge over China is more like a chasm. The United States has nearly 20 times the number of nuclear warheads as China. It has twice the tonnage of warships at sea including 11 nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, compared with China's two carriers, which are much less advanced. Washington has over 2,000 modern fighter jets, compared to Beijing's roughly 600, according to national security analyst Sebastian Roblin. And the U.S. deploys this power using a vast network of some 800 overseas bases. China has three. China spends about $250 billion on its military, which is a third as much as the United States. Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institution notes that if China were in NATO, we would berate it for inadequate burden-sharing since its military outlays fall well below NATO's 2% minimum. 
At the height of its imperial might in the late 19th century, when it ruled over a quarter of the world's population, Great Britain adopted a two-power standard. Its navy had to be larger than the next two put together. U.S. military spending remains larger than the next ten countries put together, six of which are Washington's close allies. America's intelligence budget alone, around $85 billion, is much larger than Russia's total defense spending. And yet the U.S. never imagined that this kind of spending could ever be seen by other countries as worrying or threatening. In requesting even more money for his region, the head of the Indo-Pacific Command, Admiral Davidson, remarked on China's increases in defense spending. I cannot for the life of me understand some of the capabilities that they're um, putting in the field unless it, it is an aggressive um, uh, posture. But the fact that Washington is spending more on the military than it did at the height of the Vietnam War, even accounting for inflation, should threaten no one. In any case, the size of military spending is a misleading indicator of strength, far more important are the objective sort and the political military strategy used to achieve those objectives. The U.S. has probably outspent the Taliban by, I don't know, 10,000 to 1 in Afghanistan, and yet Washington has been unable to achieve its objective there, ensuring that the Kabul government rules the country uncontested. If the United States defines its goals carefully and assembles an intelligent and consistent political and military strategy to achieve them, it can succeed. Without that, millions of troops and trillions of dollars will not guarantee victory. Bigness is not a substitute for brains. Consider two contrasting exercises of power. America's F-35 fighter jet program, bedeviled by cost overruns and technical problems, will ultimately cost taxpayers $1.7 trillion, according to a document obtained by Bloomberg. China will likely spend a comparable amount of money on its Belt and Road Initiative, an ambitious set of loans, aid, and financing for infrastructure projects across the world aimed at creating greater interdependence with dozens of countries that are important to Beijing. Which do you think is money better spent? The Pentagon operates in a realm apart from any other government agency. It spends money on a scale and wastes money on a scale that is almost unimaginable. Every government agency is required to audit its accounts. But for decades, the Pentagon simply flouted this law. In 2018, it finally obeyed, paying $400 million for 1,200 auditors to examine its books. Yet it still could not get a clean bill of health. As Matt Taibbi notes in a brilliant expose of Pentagon accounting, the auditors were unable to pass the Pentagon or flunk it. They could only offer no opinion, explaining the military's empire of hundreds of acronymic accounting silos was too illogical to penetrate. The Defense Department has failed to pass two more audits. Having spent nearly two decades fighting wars in the Middle East without much success, the Pentagon will now revert to its favorite kind of conflict, a cold war with a nuclear power. It can raise endless amounts of money to outpace China, even if nuclear deterrence makes it unlikely there will be an actual fighting war in Asia. Of course, there might be budget wars in Washington, but those are the battles the Pentagon knows how to win. God damn, son. Exit stage left, you're fired. <laughs> like, there's got to be something going on behind the scenes. Either the higher-ups didn't see this, or if they did see this, Free Zakari is getting a phone call. Because they, they, they don't, this is the stuff that we, you know, we here on YouTube, us, you know, little peons, we get demonetized for this stuff. We get deranked in the algorithm for this stuff. That was a phenomenal segment. From beginning to end, every word of it was brilliant. In fact, he, he just educated me on some facts I didn't know. So he said, you know, he was comparing the size and the scope of the U.S. military versus the Chinese military as we laughably proclaim that they're a gigantic threat to us and to world peace and whatever. He says, we have 2,000 fighter jets, they have 600 fighter jets. We have 800 military bases around the world. 
they have three. They spend $250 billion on their military, which is one-third what we spend. We spend more than the next 10 biggest militaries combined, and six of those countries are our allies. Our intelligence agencies alone spend more than all of Russia's military budget. And the best point in there is, and this shows you how warped the mindset in the rest of mainstream media is, he points out, well, hold on now. Why is our military spending never described as aggressive or offensive or counterproductive or threatening to world peace? Every idiot in mainstream media is an American exceptionalist slash American supremacist. So, so they just grandfather in our actions as, by definition, defensive and always correct and always coming from a place of morality and justice and being the world's police. Well, I got news for you. That's absurd. We are acting in the exact same way that empires previously have acted in our own self-interest, by and large. Sure, we give a, a veneer, a facade you know, we act like, no, 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 this is really about human rights and justice. Oh, is it? Saudi Arabia is one of our top allies. We give them money and weapons. We're aiding them in carrying out a genocide in Yemen. We've armed jihadists on the ground in Syria. Jihadists, you know, the same people that attacked us on 9-11. So you sure this is really about human rights? One of our top allies in the region is Israel, an apartheid state. Are you sure? Oh, that's what we care so deeply about human rights. Have you seen the history of the United States of America post-World War II? Have you, seen this? have you seen what we've done to Central and South America? How many times have we overthrown democratic governments to put in dictators? And then we laughably act like, no, 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 the, the dictator we just put into power is actually, you know, a small-D Democrat, was, was democratically elected, is supported by the people. Absurd, absurd. So Fareed Zakaria is pointing out, how come our stuff is never viewed as a threat to world peace, but we get to point at much smaller militaries and act like, oh, how dare you be moving in such an aggressive fashion and spending more money on your military? It's a joke. It's the same reason why we, we don't have a leg to stand on to criticize other people for even violating international law. Why? Because violating international law is something we do on a Tuesday before breakfast. I mean, this is what it is. The, the war in Iraq was an illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us. That's against U.S. law. That's against international law. That's against the Nuremberg Tribunal and the Geneva Conventions. The United Nations said, you can't do it. We said, go fuck yourself, and we did it anyway. Look at Afghanistan. What are we still doing in Afghanistan? The original idea was we got to get Osama bin Laden. That's why we're going there. He's been dead for so long. And I love how when that happened, everybody just... <laughs> so we're... We can go ahead and stay here, even though the thing that we said was the objective is done. Iraq, we got to get Saddam. He's been dead for a long time, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, we did the thing that we said that was the goal of the thing, but when, see, what happened was me and Craig was by the same way, and the sun was in my eyes, and we're going to end up just staying because we got to make sure that things and stuff is happening and whatnot. Are you kidding me? Who buys this shit? Listen, the main point is anybody who looks at this objectively for even a split second, goes, oh my God, this is a farce. This is terrible. This is an empire acting like an empire. This is imperialism through and through. These are neoconservative war hawks in the establishment, and it's bipartisan. And it's, it's, it's a joke. And so 
The fact that other people in mainstream media do not point it out is such a damning indictment of mainstream media. And I give tremendous credit to Fareed Zakaria for this, because no doubt they will not tolerate this in the long term. There's no doubt, because guess what? A lot of the advertisers in mainstream media, you guessed it, Raytheon, Boeing, Honeywell, Lockheed Martin, all the military industrial complex goons. They do a lot of the advertising on the Sunday shows, for example, probably on CNN, on other outlets. And the reasoning is, is not because they, you know, they want somebody to buy an F-35. They want somebody watching a Sunday show to buy an F-35. No, they're basically paying for a hands-off approach. Hey, we're going to fund you, but just know who's funding you. So don't do an expose on our no-bid contracts where we got massively wealthy and we built all these tanks and now they're sitting in a desert in Nevada. Don't do an expose on, you know, where some of our weapons are going to prop up dictatorships in the Middle East. Don't do an expose on any of this stuff. Don't do it. So that's the deal. And now Fareed Zakaria is messing up that deal. And again, I have unending credit for him on this front. This was, I have no criticisms of that segment at all. From beginning to end, it was brilliant. Um, some other facts. He said the U.S. is spending more now on our military than we were spending at the height of the Vietnam War, even adjusting for inflation. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Um, he points out that the F-35-2 cost $1.7 trillion to make, and it didn't work for a while. Guess what? Well, China's doing this thing called the Belt and Road Initiative, where China goes to developing countries and builds their infrastructure for them. So that's a new version of imperialism. That's what that is. So you basically buy their loyalty in a way. The U.S. version of imperialism is use power, but it's not brute force. It's soft power because we prop up people from their own countries to be their leaders and be subservient to the U.S. and let us extract their natural resources. And we were an evolution from the previous way of doing it. The British Empire, for example, where there wouldn't even be a pretense of, like, you guys are in control of your own business. They would just take something over by force. Look at what Britain did to India. They would just take it over by force and be like, we're here now and we're in charge. We're not doing the we're here and we're in charge. We go in there, do military action, then put somebody from their own country to be in charge, but they're puppets of the U.S. So this is the next evolution of what if we build your infrastructure? What if we make you an offer you can't refuse? And then you'll see, effectively, these countries would be making a deal with the devil, and there will be extraction and things of that nature from the imperialist power. But his point is, look at how much more intelligent their version of empire is versus our version of empire is. Like, what do you think is money better spent? Effectively buying the loyalty? It's actually kind of like the Marshall Plan a little bit. So what do you think is more effective? Buying the loyalty of other countries through material well-being to some extent, and then later on saying, hey, remember when I helped you out? Or do what we're doing. I don't know, waste trillions of dollars on this jet that doesn't even work. It's because the military-industrial complex, it's a scam. It's a scam is what it is. It's Medley Butler said it. War's a racket. A lot of people are getting rich from war. That's what it is. And the final point is this. Guys, it's a ruse all along. This is what the deep state is, by the way. The intelligence agencies that are there from administration to administration, the military-industrial complex. And, see, originally they had the boogeyman of the Soviet Union. And it was, oh, my God, we have to do whatever we can to defeat these people because communism is going to take over the world and we can't allow that. Then it became 
okay, when the Soviet Union collapsed, we don't have an enemy, we can't justify these endlessly bloated, disgusting military budgets. Well, now, oh, we had 9-11, we had the war on terror, so Al-Qaeda is the enemy, radical uh, Islamic extremism, so now we, we need those bloated military budgets again. What do you want me to tell you? There's nothing we can do. We got to do what we got to do. Then now, that phase is coming to an end. At least it's not working anymore, the propaganda for the American public to accept the bloated military budgets. So now what are they doing? Now they've graduated to Democrats half the time are going right back to Russia, 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 Russia gating, Cold War 2.0 stuff. Republicans all in a China, 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 China gate now. Be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. We, I mean, we have to do what we have to do. What, they're doing a genocide. What, we we got to help. If you believe the United States is truly concerned about the Uyghur Muslims and about human rights, again, I have a bridge to sell you. They're simply not concerned about that. If we were so concerned about genocide, we would stop facilitating one in Yemen. You understand? And as Chomsky says, we're responsible for what we do. We are actively helping to facilitate a a genocide in Yemen. It's a lot easier to bring about human rights in Yemen when we're actively on the wrong side of that, hurting people. Just stop actively hurting people. Stop participating in a genocide. That's how you make the world better. Not threaten to get into some sort of military confrontation to stop China from doing things that are bad. And I'm not commenting in any way, shape, or form on what's actually happening in China. Because I'm not an expert. I don't know what the fuck is going on, to be honest with you. I can't separate what's propaganda from what's real human rights abuses. Of course China's doing real human rights abuses. There's no doubt about that, because every power center does real human rights abuses. But I'm in no position to comment on what's happening there. All I can tell you is I know for sure the motivations of the U.S. government. And it is not at all to bring about human rights anywhere. So now the new justification for the endless bloated military budgets is China. And so here we are. And Fareed Zakari is pointing it out. And now I'm hoping he stays on air. I've done many segments where I've criticized him, but after seeing this, this leads me to believe he's a little bit more independent-minded than perhaps any of us gave him credit for originally. But my guess is if the higher-ups see this, he's on borrowed time. They accept deviation every now and then from the party line and the narrative, but if he were to consistently do this, he'll be over here on YouTube with me. Okay, next. We are going to talk about Joe Biden's tax proposal. We are going to talk about Joe Biden's tax proposal. All right, y'all, it's nerdy segment time. This is one of my favorite times on the show. Uh, Let me show you what Jeff Stein from the Washington Post is saying about Joe Biden's tax plan. We have these specifics to report to you. Major Biden tax hikes eyed for next bill, not final, include the corporate tax rate is going from 21% to 28%. I'm going to come back to all these, by the way, and break them down when I'm done here. A global minimum tax for corporations is going to be 21%. The top income tax rate, or actually the global minimum tax, I don't know if that applies to the wealthy and corporations or just corporations. Top income tax rate they want to bring to 39.6%. If I'm not mistaken, that's where it was in the Obama years. Um, They want to end fossil fuel subsidies, which is basically a negative income tax rate for fossil fuel companies. They want to tax investment gains 
um, over $1 million as wage income as opposed to using the capital gains rate, which is lower, and they want to tax assets passed on at death, and they don't want to do anything different with the SALT tax. So the SALT tax, for those of you who don't know, is the state and local state and local tax? Yes, it's a deduction for the state and local tax. So what happens in, is in a lot of blue states, wealthier people have to pay a decent amount of state and local tax. And it used to be the case that you can deduct that from your federal tax bill. But then Trump got rid of that. It's an effective tax hike on wealthier people in blue states. And um, it looks like Biden doesn't want to change that. He wants to keep it like it is. So he wants to keep the tax hike on wealthier um, people in blue states. I think that's fine. I think that makes sense. I'm generally in favor of tax increases on the, on the wealthy. So now let's break it down. So the corporate tax rate from 21 to, 21% to 28%, is that good, bad, or somewhere in the middle? I'm going to rate somewhere in the middle. Here's why. Because before Trump, the corporate tax rate was 35%. So he's not even saying, let's go back to that pre-Trump level of 35%. He's saying, I'll split the difference and do 28%. That's classic neoliberal corporate Biden and classic Democrat in the year 2021. That's what that is. Um, now, when the rate was 35%, it's not the case that all the corporations were paying 35% because you have to factor in all the loopholes and the du- deductions. And some companies were probably paying 30%. Some companies were paying zero. Some companies somehow got a negative tax rate, some big corporations. So when it was 35% on paper, that the nominal rate is not the same as the effective rate. The effective rate varied. Now, if Biden takes it from 21% to 28%, and he also eliminates the loopholes and deductions, and the 28% is effectively a higher tax rate than the nominal 35% was, then it would unquestionably be a good thing, but I'm skeptical that he's actually going to do that. You know, that's actually what uh, JFK did. JFK, um, he... He eliminated loopholes and deductions, so even though his higher rate, top marginal tax rate of about 70% under JFK, um, even though that was lower than the Eisenhower years, which were like 93% top marginal rate, effectively the wealthy paid more because JFK eliminated loopholes and deductions. And by the way, we'll, I'll get to marginal rates in a minute. For those of you who don't understand what that means, we'll come back to that. Now, the global minimum tax is 21%. I have to say I don't get this one because we covered this story the other day. It's totally unenforceable, so it doesn't mean anything. It's like it's a it's a complete virtue signal of like, yeah, well, I'm in favor of raising taxes on the wealthy and corporations. I want to do a global minimum tax. Wonderful. How do you enforce it? Well, the OECD maybe with something and some other thing can then make it the thing with the happening and whatnot. It, there's no way to enforce it. So what are you doing? It's a waste of time. So I, I don't know why anybody would do this unless the whole point is just a virtue signal, which is pathetic. Then we get top income tax rate to 39.6%. Is that bad, good, or somewhere in the middle? Again, I'm going to rank it somewhere in the middle. It's just going back to the Obama rate. Now, by the way, now is the time to talk about marginal tax rates. So this is something that I'm not sure there's any Republican politician or Republican media figure who actually understands what a marginal tax rate is, or they do and they're just complete liars and they're lying to you on purpose. Well, because this is what people went after Bernie for. People are like, Bernie Sanders wants a debt, wants a Tax rate of 70-something percent. Ridiculous. The government's going to take 70% of your money. The government's going to take 70% of your money. Nonsense. So what a marginal rate is, it means every dollar above a certain line gets taxed at that whatever the rate is. 
So in, in, let's take Bernie's, uh, you know, case. I'm not sure what his line was, but it was like $5 million or $10 million or somewhere in there, maybe $3 million, something like that. So it's not that the government comes and they say, oh, you have $3 million, let me take 70% of it. No. It's more like you have $4 million that you made this year. Every dollar from $3 million to $4 million will be taxed at 70%, and everything below that is taxed at a lower rate. So, you know, in other words, you could have a, marginal tax, a top marginal tax rate of 100% over $50 million, and that first $50 million is taxed at a much lower rate. So if you're, you know, playing the victim over that, it's kind of absurd because you're going to have millions of dollars. You know, again, they, they mislead you into thinking the, the tax rates in question are just the government taking that percentage of all of your money, and it's not even close to that. It's not remotely close to that. So it's, it's, it's insane and discouraging when you have conversations about tax rates because the enti- every elected Republican politician and every Republican media figure, they're either being dishonest or they're complete idiots and they don't know the ba- most basic things about the tax code. So anyway... To go back to the 39.6% rate, good. It's better than what we have now. I actually don't even remember what Trump reduced it to. Was it 35% or 30%? It was something like that. Um, but they want to bring it back to 396 It's in the middle. You know, that's not bad or good. It's somewhere in the middle. I would really, the original proposal, I think, needs to be way higher than that, that you should be proposing at least like 60%, because all this stuff is going to get chopped down in negotiations anyway. So, like, why are you proposing what's already gonna, what already would be the compromise? Because, really, he's not, you know, I don't think Biden's too keen on this stuff anyway. I think he's not, not terribly offended by trickle-down, if you want to know the truth. Um, ending fossil fuel subsidies, that's unquestionably a good thing. I don't even need to explain what that means. Stop giving taxpayer money to fossil fuel companies. They're phenomenally wealthy anyway. They don't need us to give them a welfare check from now until the end of time. Um, taxing investment gains over $1 million as wage income, that's good, but, you know, I think that, I really think that almost all capital gains income should be taxed as if it's income. And, like, I don't know why if you gamble for a living in the stock market, you get to pay a lower tax rate than if you actually work for a living. If anything, it should be the opposite, that if you work for a living, you should pay a lower rate than somebody who just sits around all day and gambles. Because that's what the stock market is. It's gambling. It's like a casino. So, Either link it all and have it all taxed as income, or if anything, you should be biased more in favor of if you work for a living, you get a lower tax rate. So over $1 million as wage income, good, but at the very least, I would say it should be you know anything over $100,000 in income from capital gains should be taxed at the income tax rates. Um, and then finally, tax assets passed on at death, that's good, and the salt we already discussed. So listen, overall, what am I giving Biden for this tax proposal, for this tax plan? I'll give it a C plus. This stuff is good, but it's already half measures, and it's going to get chopped down like crazy in negotiations because now is when you start talking to, you know, Joe Manchin and people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, and you bring this to them, and then knowing Biden, he wants the Republicans to get involved. And, you know, you have to start the negotiation from a decently progressive position. He's starting the negotiation – from a compromised corporatist position. So I don't think, I'm, I'm not optimistic that any of this stuff is going to get through, and definitely none of it's going to get through if you don't reform the filibuster. That's the reality. Um, and of course, by the way, Republicans are going to lie about this through and through. They're going to say stuff like, 
Biden wants to raise taxes on working Americans in the middle class. That is complete and utter garbage. Complete, just lies. That would be lies. When they say that, and they're probably already saying it, just know it's complete bullshit and they're lying to you on purpose. The criticism of Joe Biden's plan is that it doesn't go, it's not aggressive enough on the wealthy and corporations. The criticism is not that he's raising taxes on working people. In fact, he's simply not doing that, period, at all. So, but now you know the facts on it. Um, we'll see what happens with the negotiation, but I'm really not optimistic that any of this stuff is going to get implemented. Okay, next. Bill Crystal is now a resistance hero. Why? Because he's a Republican and he's a conservative and he despises Trump. And in mainstream media, that makes them hard because they see that and they go, yeah, we can serve the establishment while also saying we don't like mean tweets. Yeah, this is beautiful. So anyway, here's Bill Crystal weighing in on the discourse as to whether or not Washington, D.C. should become the 51st state or Puerto Rico should become the 51st state or should we have both and then we have 52 states. Here's the contribution of Bill Crystal, And now you'll see why he never should have been allowed back in the polite society club. One reason I'm for D.C. statehood, the growth in size of the republic and our distinctive manner of growth admitting states with equal status, has always been a sign of our vigor. 60 years at 50 states is enough. Time for D.C., Puerto Rico, Cuba, as soon as it's free, one or two more. He's saying, yeah, okay, I'll take D.C. and Puerto Rico. What about Cuba? You guys want to take Cuba for a state? Washington, D.C. is part of the United States. Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory, so it's part of the United States. Cuba is its own sovereign country. Now, you don't have to like Cuba, Bill Crystal, but you don't get to willy-nilly annex it. Jack Cuba. Be like, mine. This is what happens when you let a neocon war hawk, war criminal imperialist in the club, in the cool kids resistance mainstream media corporate hack club. Here we are. Here we are. Steal a sovereign nation and somehow tell us pretty little stories about how we believe in justice and fairness and equality and democracy. I mean, hilariously, that's what he's saying in this tweet. He's talking about how, well, admitting new states has always been a sign of how amazing we are, our vigor, how great we are. Anyway, Let's deal sovereign countries. Wouldn't that sort of contradict the thing where you're saying how great we are and how amazing we are and how wonderful we are? If any other country acted like this, what would Bill Crystal say? Topple them. They're ripe for regime change. Imagine Iran casually musing. What if we stole a country? He'd be like, oh my God, invade today. Go, 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 go. We know that's how he would react. Because he, he's saying that in Iran isn't trying to steal a country. This guy has never met a war he didn't like, ever, ever. 
If this guy had his way, we'd already be at war with Iran. We'd at the same time take on North Korea. We'd probably also be in Venezuela. He's always for regime change. By the way, he's a literal war criminal. He should be in prison. He should be in The Hague. This is a guy who was one of the original architects of the Iraq War. And just so you know, it shows how terrified you should really be. Because look at how dumb he is. And he was making major, massive decisions that impacted people's lives. This psychopath. He's got blood on his hands, man. Minimum, absolute minimum, 200,000 civilians died in Iraq. A war that he enthusiastically supported. Every prediction he made was dead wrong about Iraq. Every single one. Nobody should take this guy seriously. And by the way, the only reason he even disliked Trump is because Trump's rhetoric on the campaign trail in 2016 was vaguely populist. Now, Trump didn't govern in a populist way. He brought John Bolton in for foreign policy, so this guy's clearly serving the establishment. There's no doubt about that. But the thing that Bill Kristol didn't like is that every now and then Trump would say war's bad, and every now and then Trump would say, hey, maybe we shouldn't outsource all of our jobs. That's what made Bill Kristol turn on him. And mainstream media still was swooning and fawning over Bill Kristol. Oh, he said Trump is bad. I also think Trump is bad, sir. You're a hero. You're a hero, sir. This guy, this guy, let's steal Cuba. Are you in favor of that? I'm in favor of that. Are you in favor of that? I'm in favor of that. I think we should steal Cuba. You don't have to like Cuba, but you don't get to willy-nilly steal countries. That's not how it works. And if this guy had his way, he would definitely go back to the Batista days. If this guy had his way, we'd have dictator U.S. puppets everywhere. Venezuela, Bolivia, Iran, North Korea, I mean, you name it. So he doesn't, he doesn't believe in any of the things he says. He pretends he believes in democracy and freedom and human rights. He, in practice, he's against every single one of those things, which makes him the most obnoxious. Because he cloaks himself as this virtuous man crusading for justice, when in reality, he's the exact opposite. He's a human rights violator. He's a warmonger and a war criminal and he's pro-dictatorship. He's a joke. He's a joke. So congratulations to uh, everybody in mainstream media who rehabilitated this goon. And listen, I don't know how many times I could tell you guys, I've said it a million times, but um, think of Bill Kristol in the same way you think of like Michael Avenatti. I remember when I was one of only a handful of people who was out there saying, I don't trust this fucker. And everybody else was like, oh, he's saying Trump is bad. What a great, great man. Yeah. Like that's not enough. That's the lowest bar of all time to clear. I don't like Trump. Oh, congratulations. What a fucking hero you are. That's not hard to deduce. It's not hard to deduce that the guy on the, who said, um, let's take out their families, talking about killing the family members of terrorists, not hard to deduce that that guy's an asshole. The guy who called Mexicans criminals and rapists. Not hard to tell he's an asshole. Not hard at all, actually. But again, as long as you're out there on, on mainstream media and you're saying the most banal anti-Trumpisms, they come themselves and they lose their mind. Oh my God, he's so wonderful. Well, that, look at Avenatti, look at Bill Kristol, look at all the other idiots who are rehabilitated. Look at the Lincoln Project, the spectacular implosion of those guys. Now you know, don't fall for it. Actually have standards, have principles. Again, this guy's a war criminal. He should have never flown under the radar to be in such a prominent position moving forward. And he should be out of polite society, ASAP.
Next. Next. Now we are going to talk about What are we going to talk about? Oh, back to Biden. I got more from Biden. So I gave you his tax plan before, and now I'm going to break down his infrastructure plan for you. I have another dorky, geeky, nerdy segment for you guys. Again, these are some of my favorites, but Jeff Stein from the Washington Post tweeted some of the details of Biden's infrastructure plan. Now, I'm not sure if infrastructure is next or his tax plan is next, but it's one of the two. So here's what Jeff says. To recap, among big things expected, not final, in the next big Biden bill, $1 trillion for infrastructure, universal pre-K, free community college, $200 billion for housing, $100 billion for green climate, expanded child benefit for a few years, and ACA subsidies. That's Obamacare subsidies. So um, let's break this down. A trillion dollars for infrastructure. Is that good, bad, or somewhere in the middle? Somewhere in the middle, leaning towards bad, and here's why. A report that came out in 2017, this is years ago, said that we need to spend $4.7 trillion to adequately upgrade our infrastructure. An emphasis on the word adequately. This is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. If I was running for president, one of my main issues would be making the United States have the number one infrastructure in the world. I want an infrastructure that blows everybody else out of the water. I want an A++ infrastructure. I want something that makes everybody envious. And in order to get that, what you'd really need is like Bernie Sanders' plan, and it says it on, you know, his website, lays it out in detail. Bernie Sanders was effectively proposing a $16 trillion infrastructure upgrade. $16 trillion. $16 trillion. Even Joe Manchin, I forget the exact number, it's either $3 or $4 trillion that Joe Manchin was asking for. And again, the adequate number just to upgrade it would be like 5 So if you're not talking about at least 5 and this is pre-negotiation, so you really should come in there like 10 at the very least. If you're not talking about at least $5, you are I mean, you're, it's clownish. So, okay, it's good that he wants to spend something on infrastructure because we didn't get Dickie McGee's axe from Trump, but this is... Nothing. That's really next to nothing. Nowhere near what's needed. That's not adequate. All right, next, universal pre-K. It's going to depend on the details, but the idea of it is wonderful. Completely agree with it. Free community college. Um, Again, it's going to depend on the details, and we really need to withhold judgment until we see more specifics. But good, but I'm skeptical. I don't think he's actually going to do it. Now, he said on the campaign trail, free college for everybody who makes less than 125000 is he changing that? Is, he cha- is, this, is this different than that? Um, now, I'll, you guys know I'm in favor of free college for everybody. I think it should be universal. I don't think it should be means-tested, because when you means-test it, then it could be described as welfare, and welfare is easier to cut. When you have a universal program, it's a lot harder to cut. That's why Social Security has been hanging in all these years. Um, so the details matter. In theory, it's good, but we need to see the specifics. But if he actually does universal pre-K and actually does free community college, very positive. billion for housing, 
you'd have to talk to the experts on housing. I'm not sure what the adequate number is. Um, I don't know what it would cost to eliminate homelessness, but I do know that eliminating homelessness is cheaper than not eliminating homelessness. There's been a number of studies now that have proven that taxpayers save money when you put a roof over the heads of homeless people. Again, it blows the mind and it's kind of counterintuitive, but it's true. There's been a number of studies that have demonstrated this because they need emergency services a lot more when they're out there in the streets all the time. $100 billion for uh, green climate R&D. That sounds on, on the low end for me, probably should be more. Expanded child benefit for a few years. Now, the last two are where I think the strongest criticisms come in, to be honest. Expanded child benefit for a few years by just a few years. See, this is the problem even with the COVID relief bills to this point. Everything is a one shot. Everything is just, you know, a boost of adrenaline. And you're going to get a temporary bump from it, and then it's done so, and it's gone. And in three years or four years, where are the effects? The effects are nowhere to be seen anymore. So the criticism of the COVID relief bills to this point is that nothing is recurring. There's no long-term, there's nothing that's like Medicare. There's nothing that's like Social Security. The real move would have been a universal basic income. I would have taken a universal basic income at a lower number than a one-time check at a higher number. If you tell me I'll give you the one-time check of $2,000 or I'll give you $1,000 every month, I'll take $1,000 every month, of course. Of course, because in three months you already have $3,000. So, listen, that, that really would have made a big difference. That really would have been the answer. But instead, we keep doing these temporary Band-Aid fixes, and then we have to come back because everything implodes in a little bit, and it's a real problem. So that's the problem with the COVID relief bill. Same thing with the expanded child benefit. If you're going to do it, do it. If you're going to do it, make it permanent. Um, And then the ACA subsidies, the Obamacare subsidies. This is the worst one, honestly, because this shows you the Democrats' commitment to the corrupt approach. Now, what I mean by that is this. Expanding Obamacare subsidies or expanding COBRA as they already did, guys, that's nothing but a giant giveaway to the health insurance companies. We covered the numbers. The Democrats are spending much more per person for a temporary amount of time than if they just did Medicare for all. Biden could sign an executive order giving everybody Medicare because it's an emergency pandemic. And that would save money over this garbage. It would save money per person over this garbage. Because really the idea is not just to give people coverage. If anything, that's sort of ancillary. The main purpose is let me pay back my campaign donors in the health insurance industry. And so let me funnel tax money to them and have them be that mafia middleman who's stealing from us. So... That's the problem. So anyway, there's some good stuff, there's some bad stuff, but overall, a lot of this stuff is weak and some of it's very corrupt. I mean, I guess you're obligated to say the line, no, better than Trump, of course, but that's the lowest bar in the world to clear. So, and also, I can't stress this point enough, this is his proposal up front before any negotiations with Republicans and before Manchin and Cinema weigh in. So he didn't stake a very ambitious position up front So it's going to get chiseled down and chiseled down and chiseled down. And who knows what the hell we'll be left with. And who knows if anything will pass. Because, again, the fact of the matter is you're not going to get 60 votes for any of this shit. Any of it. So what should you do? At the very least, reform the filibuster to give yourself a prayer. But even if you do that, it's still going to be tough. Okay, let me take a quick break. Actually, you know what? No, I don't want to. I'm going to keep going.
This is really, really interesting to me. Bernie Sanders in an interview with the New York Times. Apparently, Ezra Klein is working at the New York Times now. I don't know when that happened. Ezra was at Vox for a long time. I, who knows? Don't know. Don't really care about the details as to how he left there. But anyway, um, this is an, a really interesting interview. I want to show you the part. Bernie weighed in. He was asked about, effectively, cancel culture, even though I despise that terminology. It's so annoying, cancel culture. And by the way, I don't know how this somehow became the number one issue that everybody in media talks about. There's a pandemic. There's an economic depression. We're fighting endless wars. That really should take precedence over cancel culture. But anyway, this is what everybody's obsessed with at the moment. So Bernie's asked about cancel culture, particularly about Trump being kicked off Twitter permanently. Let's see what he has to say. Ezra asks, do you think there is truth to the critique that liberals have become too censorious and too willing to use their cultural and corporate and political power to censor or suppress ideas and products that offend them? Bernie says, look, you have a former president in Trump who was a racist, a sexist, a xenophobe, a pathological liar, an authoritarian, somebody who doesn't believe in the rule of law. This is a bad news guy. But if you're asking me, do I feel particularly comfortable that the then president of the United States could not express his views on Twitter, I don't feel comfortable about that. So that took, that took a turn at the end. When I started reading that, I was like, oh, he's definitely going to side with uh, big tech and say, well, what are they supposed to do? But no, at the end, he says, I don't feel comfortable with that. Now, he does go on to say, the, the, his answer is longer, and he does go on to say, basically, I don't know what to do in this situation, because you don't really want endless conspiracy theories going all over the internet and leading to like the attempted insurrection that happened on January 6th. So he does go on to say that, but the tone of it does strike me as leaning more on the side of, even though I don't know what to do about the problem, what they're currently doing is not okay. And I'm not comfortable with the amount of power that basically Silicon Valley oligarchs now have. So, um, I think Bernie's right, man. And he also, this reminded me in 2017, he made news when I think he was asked a question about Ann Coulter being deplatformed when she was going to give a speech at a college. And he basically said, like, listen, I despise Ann Coulter. I think she's wrong about everything, but let her talk. Let her talk. Because we're, it's wrong in principle to prevent her from talking. But also, you're giving them a legitimate victim complex. And it's almost like you're making them seem sexier than they are, where now they get to whine and cry and bitch and moan, I've been so wronged, I'm so aggrieved, I'm such a victim. Maybe they're censoring me because my ideas are all true. That's what they do. Don't give them that narrative. Don't become an authoritarian yourself. If the whole idea is, hey, Ann Coulter's an authoritarian, and so that's why she's a problem, which, by the way, that's true, don't use the same fucking tactics and say, well, now I'll be an authoritarian to stop the authoritarian. Or don't. Because if the issue is authoritarianism being wrong, agreed, authoritarianism is wrong. You can't use the evil tactics to fight evil. I will become evil to fight evil. That's a contradiction, man. Not down with that. You have to actually stick by your principles, stand by your principles, even when it's inconvenient. Now, don't get me wrong. Is this me saying you know, complete chaos and mayhem and anarchy and anything goes and you're allowed to do direct threats of violence and harassment. No, because even under our, our system, our incredibly pro-free speech system, 
we still have, you're not allowed to libel people or slander people or do direct threats of violence. But it's notoriously difficult to prove, and there are very few exceptions outside of that where you censor people. And I get it. The point everybody makes is, hey, man, a lot of this stuff, it's not a government issue. This is a private company, and they can do what they want. Technically, you're correct. Under our law, that's the way it works. But I will say this. Everybody who's making that argument is making a laissez-faire capitalist libertarian argument. That's what that is. Hey, private company, bro, they can do what they want. I mean, think about that in any other context. A company polluting a river because it's easier to dispose of their waste that way. Would you make that argument? They're a private company, bro. They can do what they want, bro. No, what you would say is, correctly, no, that's why we need regulation, to prevent them from abusing. Uh, right. That's why we need regulation of big tech, where I think we should expand First Amendment protections, where you say, hey, this is the public square now. Facebook and Twitter and these big social media companies, they are now the public square. So you cannot and should not censor people based on the content of what they're saying. Again, don't allow direct threats of violence. Totally fine. But outside of that, you really need to lean more heavily on the side of free speech. You have to. There's no way around it. Because everybody who's cheering, yes, Trump is gone, yes. All of a sudden, oh, my God, they just banned a bunch of Antifa accounts who I know and like. Oh, would you look at that? The thing that you espoused came back and bit you in the ass. Don't espouse it. It was wrong to espouse it. I hate to say it so crudely, but it's a package deal. In order to get me ranting about some bullshit, Steven Crowder's got to be allowed to rant about some bullshit, even though he's wrong about fucking everything. And even though he's a joke. And even though he's bigoted and the list goes on and on. But that's the way it works. It's a package deal. You don't get to pick and choose freedom for the people that I deem that freedom should apply to. Not the way it works. And by the way, not everybody fucking agrees with you as to what's offensive and what's outrageous and what's not. In fact, people have views that vary widely on that stuff. Wildly. So, Bernie's correct, man. I don't know how else I can say it. Bernie's right about this. Now, don't get it twisted, though. And I've used this example before. So take Alex Jones, right? Should Alex Jones have been deplatformed and effectively have gotten the internet death penalty? No, he shouldn't have. But if you come to me and you say, well, we should have some open process, right, where you hold people accountable, and, hey, Kyle, here's an example of a video involving Alex Jones, where Alex Jones, and to be clear, I don't know if this actually exists, but let's say for argument's sake it does. Um, Here's a video of Alex Jones directly calling out families of Sandy Hook child victims, telling people their names, and then that's leading to direct harassment. So he's like doxing the family members of Sandy Hook. You think that's free speech? I think, no, you're actually right. That's not. I think doxing crosses a clear line and it is harassment. Okay. But you know what I do in that scenario? I say, I get it. Now there needs to be some sort of process. It needs to be proven. It it needs to be orderly. But if it's determined that this is actually harassment, what you do is you pull down that specific video, the specific video. You don't say this video is harassment. Therefore, every video you've ever done, I'm going to now declare as harassment and you get the internet death penalty because that's stupid. That's dumb, and that is authoritarian, even though you think you're being authoritarian in the name of good stuff. So anyway, that's how we need to look at this stuff. Were there times Trump came close to actually crossing a line? Yes, there were times where, I mean, it was almost like direct threats of violence against North Korea. 
he didn't, it did, he didn't go this far, but it was kind of like, yeah, I'm going to invade you and bomb you. Whoa, 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 okay. See, now, again, that specific tweet, if there's an open process and you go through and you determine this actually is a direct threat of violence and this violates terms of service, got it. Pull that one tweet down. You don't do the whole account. Everything you've ever said is now by definition wrong and harassment or a direct threat of violence because there's one thing you did. No, I don't agree with that. So were there times that Trump flirted with that line? Absolutely. But even if he crossed that line in some instances, you don't do the Internet death penalty. This is the president of the United States. By the way, as if there's not ways around it, too. Now we can't go to Twitter. What's he, oh, I don't know. I'll go around uh, and just release an official presidential you know, uh, memo or whatever, and then all the media outlets cover it anyway. I mean, this is what's going to happen. So, but anyway, uh, yet again, Bernie's right on this stuff. And what you need to understand is this. He is the one who's bringing up the traditional, original, classic, correct left-wing view on this stuff. You want to know why? Because censorship as a general rule always hurt the left more than the right. Why is that? Because as a general rule, people on the left, the real left, question power much more than people on the right. People on the right, part of tradition, is you go along to get along and you serve the power centers. That's part more in line with the conservative ideology and philosophy and temperament. The left-wing approach is more to question power and to try to remake the system and redo the system and fix the system. Censorship is always going to go after the powerless. You know, that's why when they pulled down Reddit, the Donald, they also pulled down Chapo Trap House. And we can give a thousand examples of people who are accused. People on the left, we think you're a Russian bot, pulled you down. This is, it's never going to only apply to the people you dislike. Once you allow censorship, it's going to go after your own people too. And people are learning the hard way now. But Bernie's right, and he's taking the real left-wing view, and I hope everybody agrees with him. Okay, next. Now we're going to talk about Now we're going to talk. I got one more from the Bernie interview. I think this one's interesting as well. So Bernie spoke to Ezra Klein of the New York Times. I want to show you this part. This is fascinating to me. He's talking about how the Republican Party changed. So Ezra asks, do you think a byproduct of how the Republican Party has changed is that it puts less emphasis on economic issues than it used to? I was struck by how much more energized Republicans were the week that the American Rescue Plan passed by the debate over Dr. Seuss books than by this $1.9 billion spending bill. Bernie replies, look, the energy in the Republican Party has nothing to do with tax breaks to the rich. Republicans are not going into the streets the Trump Republicans saying, we need more tax breaks for the rich. We need more deregulation. We need to end the Affordable Care Act and throw 30 million people off their health care. That's not what they're talking about. What Trump understood is we are living in a very rapidly changing world, and there are many people, most often older white males, but not exclusively, who feel that they're losing control of the world that they used to dominate. And somebody like Donald Trump says, we are going to preserve the old way of life, where older white males dominated American society. We're not going to let them take 
that away from us, this is where the energy is. Now, he's flirting with the right answer, but I actually think ultimately he doesn't get the right answer. I think Ezra's question is brilliant because he's saying, well, hold on now. Why are conservatives obsessed with Dr. Seuss the same week the American Rescue Plan passes? Here's the answer. They don't have a substantive policy rebuttal to the American Rescue Plan. All they got is uh, the, the, the deficit. Uh, the deficit by it. Uh. Really? Because you guys just passed two COVID rescue plans under Trump that massively added the debt and the deficit. And you didn't say anything about that. In fact, you guys voted for it. So all of a sudden, you flipped on a dime and you're pretending to care about the debt and the deficit you didn't four and a half minutes ago. So now it's too quickly of an about face for some of them. So they don't know what to do. So what do they do? They default to culture war stuff. Guys, that's all the Republican Party has is the culture war stuff. You want to know why? Because effectively, they are serving the oligarchs and the plutocrats and the billionaires and the corporations. What the biggest piece of legislation passed in the Trump era? The 2017 tax cut bill that they did through reconciliation. 83% of the benefits of that bill went to the top 1%, 83%. So in other words, Donald Trump would just like George W. Bush, would just like Ronald Reagan, his whole existence is to serve the oligarchs and the plutocrats and the wealthy and the billionaires and the corporations. That's his whole point. Now, that ain't popular, son. That is not, that's not even close to popular. In fact, that's despised. Raising taxes on the rich is overwhelmingly popular. So they know they can't win that argument. So what do you do? Totally sidestep it and don't have the argument. Work in the shadows for your big pieces of legislation that serve power, but then act like I'm on the side of the people because I'm culturally going to argue for them. Isn't it ridiculous that they would do this with Dr. Seuss books? Dr. Seuss, an American hero. I don't know. Why would anybody do this? This is ridiculous. Everybody cancel culture. Isn't cancel culture so bad? Cancel culture so bad. Isn't it so bad? Oh, it's totally so bad. This is all they have, man. Pepe Le Pew. Now the woke mob is coming for Pepe Le Pew? It's a cartoon. What are you doing? What a waste of time. How ridiculous is this? This is an old cartoon, and this is what we're talking about? This is what we're... If you only focus on the cultural stuff, you dupe people into thinking, hey, I kind of agree with that point you're making culturally, so I guess you must be fighting for me other ways, like economically. But they're not. They're not fighting for you economically, not even a little bit. In fact, they're repeatedly fucking you economically. Now, let's not say the Democrats are good, because they're not. The Democrats left out the $15 minimum wage from the relief package when they ran on it, and it's a 67% issue uh, to raise it to $15 an hour. They left out the $2,000 checks that they said they were going to do. They made a weaselly point of like, well, we said 2000 but they already passed 600 so now we're going to add 1400 to the 600 But that weaselly, incredibly weaselly, so they backed off of a big thing. They're not fighting on the things that really matter. I get it. They could have gone a lot further. They didn't. But having said that, there is no substantive policy criticism to the American Rescue Plan from the Republicans. They're not saying you should have done $15 minimum wage. They all voted against the minimum wage increase. They're not saying you should have done $2,000 checks. They're saying, oh, my God, this is really popular. Over 70%, by the way, the American Rescue Plan was. This is really popular. We have no policy criticism. We're not going to give people anything. So just relate to them culturally. And that's what they're doing. It's the same trick. This is Thomas Frank's What's the Matter with Kansas. 
the same thing. Oh, my God. Um, it's the same thing where they used to argue, I'm with you on abortion, so vote for me. And then they would, again, vote for tax cuts for the wealthy. Do nothing on abortion. I'm with you on abortion. I'm with you on religion. I'm with you on gay people. So use cultural stuff and social stuff to do people into thinking you support them economically when really you're their enemy economically. And um, listen, unfortunately, so the Republicans do this. That's a dirty trick is what it is. It's dirty. It's dirty. But unfortunately, the Democrats don't do a good job of reframing the conversation. Because the real thing to do is to say, I can give you my opinion on whatever the culture war stuff is of the day. Here's my opinion. But it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant at the end of the day. Put it aside. Put it aside. Put it aside. What are the real problems in this country? We have a pandemic. We have what is effectively an economic depression. We have endless wars. We have a crumbling infrastructure. We have low wages. I'm going to fix all those things. I'm going to end the endless wars. I'm going to reinvest here. I'm going to rebuild our infrastructure. I'm going to cut you a check. I'm going to get you higher wages. I'm going to get you health care. So even if you don't agree with me on the cultural stuff, by the way, I'll make a good case. I think you probably will agree with me. But even if you don't agree with me on the culture stuff, it's fine. Because these are the things that it's really in the purview of government to do. Do what? Is it in the purview of the government to give us their opinion on Dr. fucking Seuss? It has nothing to do with the government. Who cares about what some random schmuck senator or congressperson says about Dr. Seuss or Pepe Le Pew or Mr. Potato Head or whatever the fuck? Who cares? I don't care about your opinion on that. That's not in the purview of the government to legislate on that stuff. By the way, we have free speech. We have the First Amendment. The government already has the correct position on that stuff. You can't get locked up for espousing the wrong opinion on some cultural shit. So put that all aside. Here are the real issues, and I'm on your side on these issues. And Democrats don't do that. Instead, oftentimes what they do is follow the Republicans down the path of endless culture war debates. And when you're having the fight on their grounds, they're much more likely to win. Instead, you should just expose how... Colossal, colossally fraudulent they are in the realms that really matter. But of course, the Democrats don't do that, partly because they're stupid strategically, but also partly because they're corrupt themselves in, in a slightly different way and maybe a slightly lesser way. But anyway, he's close, but I think Bernie feeds too much into that traditional mainstream narrative of like, white male bad, white male this, white male that. They just want to hold on to power. That's a little too simplistic, a little too woke of an explanation, to be honest, a little too standard democratic. And um, usually Bernie's good on this stuff, so I just wanted to correct the record. Okay. All right. Let me take a quick break. When I come back, I got a poll on gun control that I want to share with you guys, and I want to talk about the unionization effort going on um, in the south in Alabama at Amazon. Stay right there.
We are back, bitch. We are back, bitch. All right, let's continue. I want to give you the gun poll. All right, here we go. We had two absolutely horrific mass shootings that uh, that just happened recently. We have the one in Atlanta where a young a young man, I think he was 21 years old, he went to various massage parlors and killed eight Asian American women. Um, we've learned more over the course of the past few days. It appears like he has very backwards, primitive views on um, women and on sex. He had a, a radical Christian upbringing. Um, so there's, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to unpack in terms of uh, his religious ideology and his views on gender, um, but it ended up ended in tragedy where he murdered uh, so many Asian women, and then immediately after that, the day after that, I believe it was, we had a mass shooting that happened in uh, in Boulder, Colorado. Um, now, the, yesterday on Twitter, it was trending. I guess he, I actually don't know the details on this one, so I shouldn't really talk about it yet, but he might be Syrian-American or something, um, and he killed, I believe it was 10 people. There's, I haven't seen any information yet on the motive in this mass shooting, although you would imagine that if you're shooting up a random grocery store, it's hardly political or religious. It seems more like, you know, a, a traditional case of... Uh, unfortunate psychopathy and, you know, deep uh, mental illness. Although, you know, anybody who commits a mass shooting, I think there's an argument that you're dealing with some degree of, of mental illness. But anyway, you had these two massacres happen back to back. So now the conversation is renewed on gun control. And um, I think Biden came out the other day and said there are two House gun bills that passed that he wants the Senate to pick up. One of them involves an assault weapons ban. We had previously had an assault weapons ban in the U.S. I believe it was in the 90s, um, but we don't need more. There was a sunset provision on it, and so Biden wants to bring that back. So I went ahead and polled you guys and asked you what you think about gun reform. Now, I find this really interesting. Unfortunately, it's a Twitter poll, so it's not exactly scientific, um, and I actually wish I had one more option where I could have also put regulate them medium. <laughs> That's not the best way to frame it, but you guys get the point. But I gave you these options. I said guns, ban them, regulate them strictly, regulate them lightly, or no regulation. And um, well, you can see the results right there. Ban them, we got 11.8%. Regulate them strictly, got 56.9%. Regulate them lightly, got 21.9%. No regulation, got 9.4%. So you can see the ones that are the most popular by far and away are regulate them strictly or regulate them lightly and regulate them strictly sort of one running away with 56.9%. Now it's a Twitter poll, so you can only get so deep into the weeds and the specifics, but I left that up to people's interpretation as to how they view what does strictly mean exactly? What does a lightly mean exactly? So yeah, you know, if you ask me, I've gone 
over the course of my life, I think I've gone back and forth on the issue of guns uh, a number of times, but I think I've landed in a place that's relatively moderate in the sense that, yeah, I mean, I, when you look at the number of guns in this country and the number of mass shootings, that's not a coincidence that we by far and away have the most guns and by far and away have the most mass shootings. I mean, it is what it is. You can be some, even if you're enthusiastic about guns and you like them and you're against regulation, you can admit that fact because it is a fact that the number of mass shootings is directly tied to the number of guns that we have. It just makes it so much easier for somebody who wants to do something like that to get their hands on that. Um, so I think that's true. But yes, I do struggle to some extent with this idea of like, should you take guns away from law-abiding American who would never do anything like that because some people would do something like that? And sometimes I think yes, and sometimes I think no. You know, And ultimately, I think I've landed in the place where I am for the general regulations that um, the Democrats propose. So I'm for universal background checks. I'm for high-capacity magazine bans. Um, I've gone back and forth on the assault weapons ban. Um, but I do think at the end of the day, even if you implement, even if you regulate guns strictly, you're still going to have more mass shootings in the United States than any other countries because none of the proposals are gun buybacks and for retroactively, you know, getting some of the guns out of the country. I mean, in 2020 alone, 40 million new guns were legally purchased. And I think the year before that, it was like 17 million or something. So you're not really going to make a dent, even with the regulations that are being proposed. I mean, actually, that's not fair. Will you make a dent? Sure. But you're not, it's, we're still going to have thousands of gun deaths every single year in this country, even if you do the regulations that are being proposed. So, you know, listen, there's a, a debate to be had here about the good of the community, the collective good of the people, and safety versus individual freedoms and, you know, rights. And how do you balance those things? To what extent do you prioritize the safety of the community versus the right of the individual? And there are no easy answers to that, you know? I, it is the case, and we have all the data in the world that shows this, whether you look at Japan or Australia, that when you effectively, like, ban guns or just extremely reduce them, yeah, you're going to have, like, no mass shootings. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens. When there are no guns, you can't really do a mass shooting. Um, but is that something – in the U.S., I don't even think we can do that because we do have the Second Amendment. And even though it says for a well-regulated militia, the court interpretation over the years has been that there's still, to some extent, uh, an individual right to own a firearm, or at least certain kinds of firearms, right? So I don't even think you can do that in the U.S. Now, if you were to do that in the U.S., would that get rid of our mass shootings? Yes. But how are you even going to do that? Are you really going to go door to door and take everybody's guns? I, I don't even know how you would go about doing that. Even though it would work that nobody would die, is that really the right answer, and is that even workable in this country? Well, if you answer no to that question, well, then what, what do we have left? We can do the regulations that are being proposed by the Democrats, and that would make a dent, but really, at the end of the day, we'd still have more gun deaths than any other developed country. So, and I, so I guess this is a long way of me saying I don't have the answers. I kind of agree with what you guys said in the poll. I would say, yeah, regulate them strictly in the sense that I'm for all the regulations that the Democrats are proposing, but... I, don't, I think we should be honest about the effect that, that would really have. Maybe you'd cut the number of gun deaths at most in half, but that means you'd still have thousands of gun deaths. 
because what is it? It's like 30,000 gun deaths a year or something like that in this country. Okay, so you reduce the number of gun deaths from 30,000 to 15,000. That's great. You save 15,000 lives. But, of course, people are going to say at that time, well, now what about these 15,000? We've got to do something to save these 15,000. What if the only way to save those 15,000 is to totally ban guns? What then? Well, then, then there's a the tough conversation. Some people would say that's not a tough conversation. Save the 15,000 lives and ban the guns. Others would say, no, in order to do that, you would have to take guns away from law-abiding citizens who would never commit a crime. So it's just a difficult conversation all around. I do think you should do something. I do think you should increase regulation. But I think we should be honest about the, the extent of how much that would work and the effects of that. And then I think there's just, on some things, there's no good answers, you know, and this is one of them. There's no good answers. At least I don't think there's any good answers because I, val- I do value the individual ability to own a gun. You know, like, I, to me, yes, being a gun owner, my dad was a gun owner. To me, being a gun owner is like, I know for sure I'd never do anything terrible like that. So I should be punished because there's people out there who do shit like that. It just seems wrong. But at the same time, it is true that if you took guns away from everybody, there would be no mass shootings. So what do you do? It's, it's, a, it's a catch-22. It's a paradox. It's something we'll never have a good answer for if you value those individual freedoms and also value the collective well-being and the good of the community. So, And listen, I think historically leftists have been torn on the issue of gun rights. There are plenty of total pro-gun rights leftists. And there are, total, you know, there are plenty of uh, you know, anti-gun rights leftists. So it's a difficult conversation, and I don't have the answers. And all I can do is, is try to dissect it to the best of my ability, and that's what I offered you here. All right, next. Here we go, baby. Here we go, baby. Let's talk about unions. Alabama Senator Tuberville um, fancies himself a regular guy, regular folk. And um, he certainly has the aesthetic of a regular guy. But what I want to do here is I want to show you a speech he gave on the floor of the Senate. Um, He's going to talk about the attempt in Bessemer, Alabama, to unionize an Amazon warehouse. Look at what I think is a very dirty trick that he tries to pull off here, and then I'm going to come back and dissect it for you. I want to briefly mention the upcoming unionization vote for nearly 6,000 workers at Amazon's facility in Bessemer, Alabama, just outside of Birmingham. There's been a lot of attention paid to this lately, We've had Hollywood actors, celebrities, members of Congress, and even President Biden trying to help tip the scales toward unions' favorable outcome. Let me be clear. These hardworking Alabamians don't need Hollywood elites or federal government officials telling them what to do. We should all trust they'll make the decision they think is right for them and their families. And that's what right to work is all about, the right to choose. This is still a free country after all. I'm going to sneeze. Hold on. Uh, (laughs) Okay. 
All right, I think I got that out of my system. Anyway, was an incredibly dirty trick because what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, look at these elitists. Look at these elitists trying to tell people how to live their lives. I'm not an elitist. I'm a populist. I'm for working Americans. I'm the outsider here. But look at all these, he says, Hollywood actors, celebrities, members of Congress trying to tip the scales in this discussion. Hard-working Alabamians don't need elites telling them what to do. You have the most elitist position of everybody because this guy is anti-union. And he says, right to work is about making the choice. It's still a free country. After all, I'm, I'm pro-choice. Right to work is really right to work for less money and worse benefits. That's what that means. Now, that's not my opinion. That's a fact. In right-to-work states, workers make less money. The unions protect workers, and there's been a number of studies on this. One study found it's like over $1,000 more per year that you make. If you're unionized, you get better benefits, you get better pay. Generally, you get more time off and things of that nature. So right-to-work is right-to-work for less money and worse benefits. He's framing it as like, I'm the outsider, I'm the anti-elitists, and the people who are pro-union, they're the elitists. Bullshit. Complete and utter bullshit. Listen, I very rarely, if ever, agree with Hollywood actors and celebrities, but the fact of the matter is, if the Hollywood actors and the celebrities are in favor of unions, they're in favor of the workers making more money. And you're not. So there's a saying my dad used to use all the time, even a blind squirrel finds an acorn every now and then. That's what I say about the Hollywood actors and the celebrities who happen to be on the side of the unions in this fight. Okay, so every now and then, just if... If, uh, if Ben Affleck likes dogs, does that mean dogs suck? No. <laughs> dogs are still wonderful. So he's trying, it's a dirty trick where he's trying to be the outsider, populist, pro-worker person as he's being the elitist insider. Senator Tuberville is the one, hilarious name, is the one who is defending corporations and the wealthy and the bosses. And by the way, let's be clear, Crystal Ball made this point the other day, and it's brilliant. If this fails, which is very likely to fail, it will not be because the union is not something that's popular and wanted. It will be because people were intimidated and afraid that they'll lose their job if they vote to unionize. And you want to know why they're afraid of it? Because it's already happened. There's already been a number of stories. Now, it's technically against the law for the bosses and for management and for owners to crack down on attempts to unionize. But guess what? They do it all the time, and there are no consequences. And if there are ever are any consequences, it's a little slap on the wrist and nothing changes. So Jeff Bezos knows this. Management knows this. They know they could pressure people. They know they can, you know, do veiled threats about people losing their jobs. Of course they know that. And so he's like, hey, 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 hands off. What do you mean hands off? There is no such thing as hands off because management and owners are always trying to fight back against unionization. So you want hands-off for management to keep bullying workers against the union. That's what you want. I don't want that. I want the workers to actually be able to speak their mind and to vote their conscience and to not have to worry about retribution and revenge when they say, yeah, I'd like to be part of a union because I'd like to make more money and I'd like to have better benefits. But the reason why this gets under my skin more than anything is, again, because it's a dirty trick. Republicans have been trying now for decades to portray themselves as We're the ones who are pro-working people. That's what we are. We're pro-working people. We're against the elites. That's complete bullshit. What's 
the number one piece of legislation, most prominent piece of legislation that the Republicans passed within the past five years. Five years? Yeah. In 2017, the Republican tax cut bill. Is that five years? <laughs> Sorry, I suck at math. But that's what it was. It was the tax cut bill where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. That bill massively cut taxes for corporations and incentivized outsourcing jobs from the United States of America. And now you're going to act like, me? I'm the anti-elitist. That's what I am. And all I have to do is say, Hollywood actor, celebrity. See, this all, it's all culture war stuff. He thinks if I say Hollywood actor and celebrity, and I say elites, that everybody listening to this is going to shut their brain off and go, yeah, he must be the pro-worker one, and he must be on my side, because I don't like Hollywood actors, and he doesn't like Hollywood actors. I don't like celebrities, and he doesn't like celebrities. I don't like members of Congress, and he doesn't like members of Congress. I don't like elites, and he doesn't like elites. He is the elitist. He is the elitist. He's the guy who's taking money from corporations and aligning himself with billionaires and owners as they try to screw workers and get them to make less money. What we need is the PRO Act. That's what we need. The PRO Act is a phenomenal piece of legislation. It would effectively ban the so-called right-to-work states again, in reality, their right-to-work for less states. That's what we need, man. That's what we need. And apparently, this, I just got this news right before I started this segment, but Chuck Schumer is telling labor leaders that the PRO Act is going to get a floor vote if they can find 50 co-sponsors of the bill. Right now, they're at 45 co-sponsors. This close. What we need now is the pressure to put on these senators. That's what we need. Because that PRO Act would be a game changer. It would, be, it would have just as much of a positive impact, or maybe even more so, than the $15 minimum wage. Think about that. The PRO Act is out of this world. So... That's what's needed. And guess what, guys? Ain't no wiggling out of that one for these Republican goons where they try to act, yeah, I'm against the PRO Act, but I'm also pro-worker. The whole point of the PRO Act is to be pro-worker and to help them make more money and help them collectively bargain. There's no wiggling out of that one, and there's no wiggling out of this one. We see you, Tommy Tuberville, with your bullshit fake anti-elitism. You are the epitome of elitism. You're not a populist. You're anti-populist. You're not pro-worker. You're anti-worker. You want people to shut the hell up about how unions help workers. That's what you want. You want everybody to shut up, and you want Jeff Bezos and his thugs, his goons, and management and ownership, you want them to be able to intimidate workers and nobody say anything. So if slash when this unionization effort fails, again, it's not because people don't want the unions. It's not because unions don't help workers. It's because people are terrified that they're going to lose their job, and you can't blame them. Because guess what? Your government is biased against you. And Tommy Tuberville is a perfect example of that. All right, next. This is something that I found really fascinating. Uh, According to Mediaite, the White House is reportedly bringing in NASCAR, the Christian Broadcasting Network, and the Christian Broadcasting Network to help sell the COVID vaccine to skeptics. So there's over a billion dollar ad buy as part of the COVID relief package. And um, they already have a bunch of ads in the works. They already have a bunch of ads that have been released. And the attempt here is to get Red State America to be like, oh, shit, people who I'm culturally aligned with, like NASCAR and the Christian Broadcasting Network, Um, therefore the vaccine, so I should be for the vaccine too. I mean, that's the idea behind it. Um, 
so I find this both hilarious and interesting. And the first thought that came to mind when I saw this is I actually don't know, I didn't know, I should say, uh, the ideological breakdown of vaccine skeptics. Because I, thought, I think it's relatively diverse. I've seen plenty of people on the right who are vaccine skeptics, but I've also seen plenty of people on the left who are vaccine skeptics. And uh, I saw, I, somebody did send a poll when I asked that question. And apparently it's, it's about 34% of Republicans are vaccine skeptics. 30% of independents are vaccine skeptics, and about 10% of Democrats are vaccine skeptics. So yes, it, it does lean more in a right-wing direction, um, but not by much, not by much. And of the 30% of independents who are vaccine skeptics, I reckon that that's about 15% right-leaning independent and 15% left-leaning independent who are skeptics. Because yes, everybody should be incredibly skeptical of big pharma. They're incredibly corrupt. They're incredibly greedy. You know, there's a story that just came out the other day about how AstraZeneca might be fudging the numbers on their, uh, on their COVID vaccine trials. And even U.S. regulators are like, whoa, what are you, what are you doing here? So, um, but oftentimes what happens is people's skepticism of big pharma crosses over into, well, now I'm just against all of modern medicine. And that's why I see a lot of people on the left, sort of like hippie types, embrace all like alternative medicine. You know, there's plenty of examples of that. Um, when, just so everybody knows, there's plenty of scams and greediness in the alternative medicine field as well, just so everybody understands. Um, and, you know, my line has always been that, yes, Big Pharma is greedy and corrupt, and I've been incredibly um, aggressive in covering them, and I think it should be fully nationalized. But having said that, that doesn't mean antibiotics don't work. That doesn't mean that, you know, a lot of modern medicine isn't correct and spot on. So, um, yeah, they're trying to appeal to red state America because there are more people in red state America who are vaccine skeptics. And is this a good idea? I think so. I actually think it is kind of a good idea. If it helps even one more person get the vaccine, then it's money well spent. And my guess is it'll, it'll get more than one person to get the vaccine. There's probably a decent number of people who will get the vaccine if they feel like it truly will save my life. And if it makes them feel more comfortable to be shown that culturally people who are with you are doing this, I see no downside. But, you know, some people are TFGs and they're never going to get it no matter what you say, no matter what you do. And um, there's really nothing you can do about that, unfortunately. But they're trying. They're trying. There's actually a really interesting thing I saw the other day as well that unions are, some of them are coming out against mandatory vaccinations for workers who are in the union. And, you know, they're making the argument of free choice, your body, so on and so forth. So, um, this is an attempt for the White House to try to convince people by appealing to them culturally. It's relatively intelligent, might be moderately successful, but also might not. We'll see. But, uh, yeah, so the vaccine numbers are slowly and steadily rising, and you just hope that, number one, we could get everybody vaccinated, but also, number two, that the new variants aren't so extreme that, you're not inoculated against them after you get the vaccine. That would be a devastating scenario. Okay. Next. I got two more for you guys.
I know it feels like a million years ago, but when we had the election, um, the right-wing conspiracies about it were vast. They were very vast. They were expansive, um, so widespread. They became part of mainstream discourse. They were so widespread. And I remember as I was watching it, I felt insane because so many of the claims were just so absurd. And a lot of people were taking them seriously. And, you know, the establishment has been screwing people for so long that when the establishment says something that's actually true, people are like, no, it's not true because you've been screwing me all along, so why would I believe anything you say? And, you know, one of the, the byproducts of that failure is that this total charlatan clown buffoon, Sidney Powell, got a stranglehold on the right and was convincing a lot of people that she knew what she was talking about. Well, now, look at this. Sidney Powell has moved to dismiss Dominion's defamation lawsuit. Dominion is the voting machine company. She argues that when she accused Dominion of being part of an election rigging scheme with ties to Venezuela, quote, no reasonable person would conclude those were truly statements of fact. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So she's using the Tucker Carlson defense. He used a similar defense in court. She's using also the Alex Jones defense. I'm just an entertainer. Me? I'm just an entertainer, bro. You can't take everything I say seriously and literally. That's what she's saying. I want to repeat it. No reasonable person would conclude those were truly statements of fact. Yeah, that's right. No reasonable person would conclude that, which is why it was defamatory when you were saying it. She literally said that Venezuela and an international communist plot was rigging the election to put Joe Biden in office. As if, Number one, that there is an international communist plot. And number two, that they would be supportive of neoliberal corporatist warmonger Joe Biden. That is beyond absurd. It is the most absurd thing I can think of. Joe Biden entered the Senate making compromise deals with segregationists, being a hardcore drug warrior and a tough-on-crime guy, supporting various wars. The idea that the left is like, yes, international plot, to try to get Joe Biden in power. Yes! Beyond absurd. But she was saying this stuff, she was convincing the right of this stuff to the point that she was in the White House with the President of the United States, standoff argument with members of his own staff, trying to convince him, sir, you won, sir, you know, we can prove it, really? And and Trump's staff, to their credit, they were apoplectic. They were like, There's been over 60 freaking lawsuits, and you guys have lost every single one of them. We're not winning any of these things. Where's your fucking evidence for any of this stuff? And she would stand her ground. Ultimately, what she was saying was this, though. She would stand her ground, and she would be dead wrong. And Trump sat there and listened to complete and utter maniacs, Sidney Powell and Michael Flynn and others, go back and forth with people on his staff who were real lawyers who were like, sir... They're dead wrong. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about. What they're saying is absurd. And, you know, Trump had to sit there and listen to it, and it was 50-50 in his mind, and he had to think about, well, this person is telling me what I want to believe in my fifis, you know, facts over feelings. I don't know about that. I'm feelings over facts guy. I want to believe what Sidney Powell is telling me, but I don't know. These people seem like they're more aggressive and more correct. I wrote an amazing article about this from, I think it was Jonathan Swan over at Axios, where he broke down this meeting in phenomenal detail. And um, now... Look at what happened. So Sidney Powell was embarrassed. None of her claims turned out to be true. Lost everything in court. Total joke. She was just saying, I'm going to release the Kraken. 
my ass cheeks are going to release the Kraken. How's that Kraken going? You got Dickie McGee's axe to show for it, son. You didn't get anything. And now she's being sued by Dominion. And her argument is, no reasonable person would say I was given facts. Really, at the time, it seemed like you were saying to people, this is a fact and I'm presenting it. Charlatan, fraud, con man. And everybody needs to ask themselves, why is it the case that so many of these people can so easily rise to prominence and power in the Republican Party? How is it that this clear lunatic got into the fucking White House to try to convince the president? It's a hard question, right? It's not. It's actually a really easy question. Because they're willing dupes. They're willing dupes, and they wanted to hold on to hope so hard that they believed an obvious fraudster. Well, now you know. She's been unmasked in court, and effectively, she's taking the coward's way out. So if you were a believer in what she was saying, you should feel the worst about this. You should be the most angry about this, because she played you for a fool, and she won't even stand by the shit she was saying. She's taking the coward's way out, and it's clear. All right, last story of the day, y'all. Last story of the day, last story of the day. I love covering stories like this because in all seriousness, it makes the world make sense again. So here we have a poll that just came out from Predictive. Polling USA is covering it. This is in Arizona. This is a poll about the senators of all registered voters. Look at this. Mark Kelly has a popularity, uh, has a favorable rating of 49%, unfavorable rating of 38%. So net plus 11. Kirsten Cinema, favorable of 39%, unfavorable of 40%. So she's negative one. She's underwater. This poll was done. I believe after um, you had, was it during or after? Somewhere in the ballpark of Kirsten Cinema famously coming out against the $15 minimum wage and doing her cute little tee-hee-hee, cute little curtsy thumbs down, tee-hee-hee, fuck poor people, tee-hee-hee, fuck workers, tee-hee-hee, you should work full-time and not make enough money to survive, tee-hee-hee. So she does that. Because she's corrupt, of course. That's why she did it, because she's massively corrupt. But I'm not kidding, guys. They also believe, truly, these neoliberal corporatists believe, you don't get it. I'm playing chess. You're playing checkers, you stupid lefties. What I'm doing is actually the popular thing. People want compromise. People want negotiation. People want bipartisanship. People want Democrats who agree with Republicans on virtually everything. That's what they want. That's what they want. Well, that's what Kirsten Cinema did. She was with every single Republican, everyone, who was against the increase in the minimum wage. So she thought it was correct policy-wise, but also cor- correct politically. Here are the results. Mark Kelly was for the minimum wage increase. He's plus 11 favorability. She was against the minimum wage increase, minus one. Turns out the minimum wage is actually wildly popular. Didn't take a genius to figure that out. There's one poll that came out in 2019. of the country wanted a $15 minimum wage. 67% of the country. Donald Trump won the state of Florida in the election. He won the state. You know what else passed through direct ballot initiative, through a direct vote of the people of Florida? 
60% of them voted for a minimum wage increase, and the minimum wage increase passed. So a state that voted for Donald Trump also voted for a minimum wage increase. It's not just popular among Democrats. It's also popular among Republican voters. It's popular among the entire country. And guess what? Actions have consequences. And now you're beginning to see them. So I love the thought of Kirsten Cinema behind closed doors with her staffers going through the new round of polling, looking at the new numbers, and going, let's see how, oh, no, what have I done? I love that thought. I love it. Because, again, I'm not kidding. Yes, she's, she's doing this because she's corrupt and she's sold out to big business. She's taking money from them and she's doing their bidding. That's why she's against the $15 minimum wage. But I'm not kidding when I say she also believes that what she's doing is actually popular. And she thinks like, oh, it'll save my career if I vote against the $15 minimum wage. No, it's not. No, it's not. You're ending your own career when you do stuff like that. Who likes that? Over 80% of the Democratic base wants to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Over 80%. You ran as a Democrat. That's what you did. That's what you did. So you're screwing your base over. Again, even the Republican base, the Republicans aren't going to vote for you anyway. But in one poll, over 50% of Republicans want to raise that minimum wage to $15 an hour. Who does this serve? It's nothing but naked corporatism and corruption. The only people who are happy are the billionaires and the corporations. And you take money from them, and you do their bidding. I don't know how she managed to convince herself this is smart politically, but now you know. Now you see it. One of these people voted for the minimum wage increase and has a plus 11 favorability. One of them didn't, and it's negative one. They need to feel the wrath of holy hell after they do something like this. They need to be put in a corner to do the right thing. The only thing, the only thing that can override these people doing the bidding of their donors is if they're convinced, if I do the bidding of my donors on this one, my career is over. The only way they'll change. So that's why you need endless pressure on $15 minimum wage. You need endless pressure on Medicare for all. You need to put these people in a corner. And if Biden was on our side, which he's not, but if he was on our side, he'd be able to play a carrot and stick game behind them, with them behind the scenes where he would say, listen, if you vote for these things that I'm proposing, I'll make you my best friend. I'll guarantee you get reelected. I'll campaign for you, and I have a 55% approval rating. Or, you know, if you are my enemy, fine, then you're my enemy, and you're done. And I'll campaign against you. I'll support a primary opponent against you. I'll make your life a living hell. Listen, if you vote for it, I'll even help. I'll give you some extra. I'll help you out. What do you want, some extra money for Arizona for, for an infrastructure project? Whatever you want, I got you. So that, that's politics. That's politics. That's the old school wheeling and dealing and getting your way. But you have to actually believe in it. And unfortunately, the Democrats don't really believe in it. But I, this is why I always say, man, one of the most important policies that we can and should get implemented is a direct ballot initiative at a federal level. Because when you have the American people vote directly on things, they're almost always right. I mean, it's like 80% of the time they get it right. Every now and then you have big money flood on one side of the issue and they mislead people and the issue loses. But usually when you're talking about clear issues, there's no amount of propaganda that can dupe people. And so that's why almost every time a minimum wage vote comes up, the people pass it. Almost every time a marijuana vote comes up, the people pass it. Every now and then there are exceptions, but 80% of the time the people vote the right way. And that's a direct way to go around the corruption in our system. You know, getting money out of politics is the solution to the corruption. But it's so hard to do that because we need a constitutional amendment, and that process is incredibly difficult and you need such large numbers. But there is a way around the corruption where it's still there, but you can go right around it, and that would be a direct ballot initiative, direct democracy at a federal level. And um, 
the people are way more reasonable than Kirsten sellout corporatist cinema. And I love the fact that she's despised now, and she's going to get a lot more of this if she doesn't get her ass in line and start supporting popular left-wing ideas. Okay. All right, guys. I'm done, baby. I love you. We have Andrew Yang on Crystal Kyle and Friends this week. I am incredibly excited to talk to Andrew Yang. We tried to make it happen a while ago, but he actually got COVID, and so he couldn't do it. Well, now he's recovered. He's still leading the New York City mayor's race. So we have Andrew Yang on Crystal Kyle and Friends. It's going to be a fascinating interview. Number one, he's debuting something with us on Crystal Kyle and Friends that he's excited to share with everybody, and we can't wait to share it with you. I don't know exactly what it is yet, but he wants to debut something on our show, so we're sort of flattered by that, that he's debuting something big on our show that he's excited about. That's great. And then the other thing is, listen, there's a lot of stuff I love about Andrew Yang, and I'm going to ask him about all the stuff that I love about him, without a doubt. There's also a lot of criticisms I have, and I'm going to ask him about those. So if you want to see a fascinating interview with uh, some tough questions and some intelligent conversation, then uh, subscribe to Crystal Kyle and Friends on Substack. If you tip us $5 a month, you get the video uh, version, and you get it on Friday. If you don't want to sub, then what you could do is sign up at Substack, and you can get the free audio version on Saturday. But I highly recommend you get this as soon as it comes out on Friday. You're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be one of our best episodes yet. I'm super excited to talk to him, and I hope you join us. All right. Love you guys, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace.